Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, over these past few weeks, we've been looking at... uh, Paul's missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean, his first journey, just a short one, second journey, and then his third journey, revisiting some of the churches that he had established. And as Paul went around the Mediterranean, he met with a whole variety of different responses. He found himself facing some incredibly dangerous situations. There were plots to kill him. He was thrown in jail. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was run out of more than one town. And all of that for the sake of the gospel. But today the tension in the story reaches its peak. Uh, We see Paul face perhaps his greatest danger yet. Uh, When we lived up on the north coast, we had a bunch of guys from our church who uh, went out deep sea fishing one weekend. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. Uh, They went out, I, I think this is actually the boat that they went out in. Um, It was in Brunswick Heads. There were eight of them who uh, paid significant amounts of money to go out to sea. Now, I chose not to go, largely because of my complete loathing of fishing. I think it's just a complete waste of time. There's actually a a shop right there in Brunswick Heads where you can buy fresh fish. Why would you put yourself through the agony of going out to sea for eight hours to find it? But the other reason for not going was I wasn't really sure whether or not I'd be seasick when I went out. Well, none of the other guys on the boat had ever done it before either, and it wasn't till they got out there that a few of them realised that they did suffer quite 
badly from being seasick, uh, including one of the guys at our church who was a, a large guy, 120 kilo, big, solid guy, uh, and the other guys from church came home and were telling me that he was making noises that a, that a human being ought not to make, uh, that it was a, quite a terrifying experience for most of them. But they were out there for eight hours, and the fact that a couple of them were sick, well, the boat wasn't coming back. Uh, They'd paid for eight hours and they were going to get their eight hours out at sea. And that's part of the reason why I will never go deep sea fishing. Now I mention this because a significant part of the passage that we're looking at today uh, in Acts chapter 27 is the sea journey that they take to get from Caesarea to Rome. Sea travel back in Paul's day was relatively cheap, uh, pretty quick and uh, reasonably easy, but it was also incredibly dangerous. And part of the reason that I think I might get seasick if I were to go out to sea like that is that I actually get queasy just reading passages like this one in Acts chapter 27. If you remember back to last week, Paul had three court appearances. Uh, he stood up before Felix and Festus, two Roman governors, and before King Agrippa, one of the Herod family. Uh, he stood up before him and explained why it was that he was being imprisoned. But because Paul had made an appeal to Caesar, that meant that he had to be taken to Rome to appear directly before Caesar. And the final two chapters of the book of Acts are taken up with that account. They boarded the ship in Caesarea and uh, went up to Sidon. Uh, They tried to hug the coast as much as they possibly could. But this trip was a trip of around about three and a half thousand kilometres with only the last few hundred kilometres being on foot. Now, If you've read through the account in in Acts chapter 27, you'll realise that it's done in the first person. Luke, who was one of Paul's companions, is actually travelling with him to Rome, presumably to give him support. But Luke gives us this first-hand account of what it would have been like to travel by sea back in those days. The trip starts out pretty well, but it wasn't the right time of the year to be sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The weather conditions and the prevailing winds were not right for a long trip to Rome. As I said, they tried to hug the coast as much as they possibly could. They went down to Crete and they were intending to spend the winter in Crete. It's a bit of an unusual concept, isn't it, to actually winter in the place just because the sailing conditions weren't quite good enough. But some fierce storms blew up. Sailing back in those days wasn't a particularly sophisticated thing. Now, this is the kind of boat that they would have been sailing on, something almost identical to this. This is a Roman merchant ship from around about that time. It just would have been a little bigger than this one. 276 passengers, we're told, were on the ship. But there's no navigational gear. And if you can't see the sun or the stars, well, you can tend to be in fairly serious trouble. And worst of all, the sailors had no control over the boat when a big storm blew up. All they could do, the only control that they had, was to drop the sails and drop the anchors and hope for the best. Now, that's not the kind of control that I would want to have on a vessel if I'm bobbing around on the Mediterranean Sea. And just to give you some idea of just how dangerous this is, have a look in the account. Chapter 27, verse number 16. You should have a Bible open there because I did tell you that was the passage we are going to have a look at. Acts chapter 27, verse 16. As we passed to the lee side of a small island called Cowder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. 
When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Oh, sorry, did you not hear what I just said? They put ropes underneath the boat to try and tie it together. That is not what you want to hear. That's not going to fill me with a whole lot of confidence if I'm out on that boat. But then look at what it goes on to say. Verse number 18. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I think Luke even realises what a crazy thing this is. Neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. I'd given up a long time before that, trust me. But my favourite part of the description is what he says. Jump down to verse number 27. On the 14th night, 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic. When at about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Drop the anchors and pray for daylight. And right there is why you will never find me going out deep sea fishing. Okay? The storm lasted for 14 days, being buffeted around on those waves. But through it all, when you read the account, Paul keeps reassuring them, no lives will be lost. God's got this under control. We will all be saved in the end. It's funny when you read through this account because I think it actually is intended to bring to mind another story of some people on the sea in a storm from a little earlier in the Bible in the pages of the Old Testament. There's really strong parallels between Paul and Jonah. Well, maybe not parallels, contrasts might be a better way of describing it. See, both of these men, Jonah and Paul, were both sent by God to preach to the Gentiles. Jonah, well, he's rather reluctant about doing it and he tries to escape from God. But Paul, he's on the boat that he wants to be on. He wants to be in Rome. He wants to be able to stand up before Caesar and declare that Jesus is Lord. Paul's almost the good version of Jonah. The stories sound very similar. The sailors giving up all hope, throwing the cargo overboard. But Paul is the good Jonah. Well, finally, the boat runs aground on the tiny island of Malta. It's pretty hard to know how you could actually hit that. It's so small in the Mediterranean Sea, but they managed to do that. And as Paul said, not a single life was lost. But Luke also records a couple of other incidents from when they arrived in Malta. Uh, They made a bonfire on the beach to try and dry themselves off and get themselves warm after their terrible ordeal. But a snake came out of the branches that they were putting onto the fire and latched onto Paul's hand. And the people on the island of Malta, well, they assumed that this just must have been God's justice. Sure, he's escaped the sea, but he ain't going to escape God. The snake is obviously going to kill him. They thought that he must have been a murderer or something like that to have deserved that kind of justice from God. But the hours rolled by, nothing happened. Paul's hand didn't swell up, 
He didn't fall down and die. So then their thinking changes to a different direction. Maybe he's in fact a god. Maybe that's what we're supposed to read. Just shows you how fickle human beings are, doesn't it? And how we desperately need someone to explain the events, not just offer our own interpretations on the things that happen. Well, both of their speculations are wrong. It's not God's judgment and he is not a God. They spend winter in Malta, three months in total, Luke tells us. And then finally, when the winds became right, they head to Rome. It was a short trip by sea to get to Rome uh, and then the final part of the journey was done on foot. Luke tells us that when they were about 50 kilometres out from Rome, there were a group of Christians who'd heard that Paul was coming and they came to greet him. They came to encourage him and Paul's no doubt excited by that idea. See, this had been his plan for quite some years now, to get to Rome, the centre of the empire, the place from where the gospel could go out to the rest of the world. When Paul arrives in Rome, he's kind of under house arrest. It's a little bit difficult for us to understand, but he actually rented his own house in Rome where he would have been kept with a Roman guard there to look after him. Now, Paul's usual practice, remember, from when he goes into any new town, first thing that he does is he goes to the synagogue. But when you're under house arrest, you can't really do that. So he does the next best thing. He invites all of the Jewish leaders to come to him. He talks with them about why it is that he's there, why he's about to appear before Caesar. And they listened eagerly to what Paul said about Jesus. And the following day, more of them came back to talk with him. But again, we get that same response to Paul. There are some who believe, but there are others who are not convinced. Now, quite amazingly, Luke tells us that Paul spent the next two years preaching the gospel from his prison house, continued to invite people in, continued to teach people and share with them the good news about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the book of Acts has a very, very abrupt ending because I'm I'm left with a whole bunch of questions. What happens to Paul? Does he actually get to stand up before Caesar? What's the result of the trial? Does he die there? Is he released? Does he go on and do more preaching elsewhere? Does he get to Spain, which was what his plan had always been? Well, the answer is we have absolutely no idea. But I can't help but think that that's actually intentional, that Luke has left his gospel with that ending. Because you know what? This is actually not about Paul. This is about Jesus. And this is about the message of Jesus going to the rest of the world. The place that the book closes is probably even more significant than the Apostle Paul. See, the very opening of the book, Jesus sets the agenda. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says that that is the job that the disciples will have, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus said that's where the gospel's got to go. Paul is now preaching in Rome 
And in the final verse, the very last verse that, that Luke gives us in the book of Acts is there, chapter 28, verse number 31. Look at what it says. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great way for the book of Acts to finish, isn't it? The book opens with this group of men worried that Jesus is now leaving, wondering what in the world are they going to do? Will they now be arrested? And the book closes with Paul in Rome, boldly and without hindrance, proclaiming Jesus. And he's hoping for the chance to be able to stand up before the Roman emperor and tell him about Jesus as well. Now, that may be the end of the book of Acts, but it's not the end of the story, is it? I mean, I think we're all well aware of that. The gospel continues to go out, and the gospel is continuing to go out today. Now, here's a chart showing the countries where the gospel is making the greatest inroads, where there is the fastest growth of Christianity in our world today. Uh, The first column, the blue column, indicates what percentage of the population in that country would have called themselves Christians in 1970, and the orange column indicates the number of people who would call themselves Christians in that country today. But look at the countries. These are the top five countries where Christianity is growing. Nepal, China, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, there's places there that you really wouldn't have been expecting to see Jesus Jesus being preached in that place, let alone seeing people respond. As followers of Jesus, the work's still there to be done to continue to bear witness to Jesus, to continue to share that good news. I'm not sure that the Christians in those countries are always going to find it that easy, but they know that it's true. They know that they need to believe it and that they need to share that message with others. See, that's what we are here for, to continue to bear witness to Jesus to continue to help other people to understand that message about who Jesus is and why he ought to make such a significant impact in their lives, why he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords.